Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. I've been getting some emails and requests asking me to speak a little bit more about this concept of reading from below or reading from above. Reading from below means to read the texts of the Bible, especially of the New Testament, with a realization that the people who wrote those words and the first audience who was reading them did not have power in the world. They were writing by and for and about people on the margins and people who were not seeking to build their power and lord it over others, as Jesus said. And they were people who found themselves, as I say, on the margins or persecuted or ignored. They had left behind their allegiances of their families and their tribes and their nations, and they were forming a new family, a royal priesthood, a new nation. And this was what it meant to read from below. It means to not read as if you are in charge. And if you want to see a good example of what happens when you read from above, then the best thing to do is to look at how Christians today treat Romans 13, 1 to 7. Almost uniformly, Christians today who find themselves in cultural positions of power, who have their fingers on the levers and the buttons of the mechanism of government, or who find themselves closely aligning their good patriotism and good citizenship with their Christian culture, will invariably find in these texts their knockdown proof text arguments for military engagement, for allegiance to governments, no matter what, for weaponized police force, for capital punishment, etc., etc. I mean, it's not... The hypocrisy is blatant here because the same sorts of groups that like to shout Romans 13, 1 to 7, and uh, when they are supporting Trump will be the ones who are strangely silent when there's a president in power that they don't like. The same groups that are shouting Romans 13, 1 to 7 at Black Lives Matter protesters often are themselves the ones who were out not obeying any coronavirus lockdown restrictions because their freedoms were being challenged. So it's pretty obvious and pretty blatant how selective conservative evangelicals and charismatics will be in their use of these texts. They pretty much only ever apply it. It only ever comes out of the woodwork when the government is saying something that they already like. And then when the government or the powers that be do things they don't like, then all of a sudden Romans 13, 1 to 7 is nowhere to be found. I think, to be fair, this is one of those odd little passages of the Bible that looks on the surface of it to be really obvious what it's talking about. And if you're not somebody who's already reading from below, if you're not somebody who's been trained or whose imagination is being channeled towards thinking along kingdom politics or Jesus way politics, if your imagination is already colonized by patriotism and law and order citizenship and the idea that Christianity is a moral force primarily in the world, if you believe all that already, then it's fair enough that if you read Romans 13, 1 to 7, your mind will quite easily slot into place and see in these verses what looks like a pretty clear proof text for patriotism. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. 
pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Right? Seems really obvious. It seems like a pretty clear cut. We need to show our patriotism. We need to involve ourselves in acts of state-sponsored violence when the state requires it. We need to wield the sword because this is how God's wrath is shown on evildoers. So therefore, when your young person comes to you and says, I think God's calling me to join the military, or I think I'm supposed to be a judge who's going to mete out the capital punishment on criminals, or I think I'm going to join a police force which has a culture of shoot to kill in times of necessity, well then, God bless you. Go for it. Oh, and while you're at it, make sure you only read Romans 13, 1 to 7, over and over again. Don't read any of the Gospels. Don't read Philippians. Don't pay any attention to Galatians or First or Second Corinthians. Um, uh, oh, don't read the rest of Romans either. Just read Romans 13, 1 to 7, and you'll be fine. Those of us who are trying to do the work of becoming followers of the way of Jesus and renewing our political imagination in the light of that way are at a distinct disadvantage at this point because all the easy soundbite common sense philosophies belong to the other side. It's not that hard to just proof text these passages. The problem is, is that the real truth of them is a little bit harder to say, and it's especially hard to say to audiences of people who are already trained to hear what they want to hear. Basically, who are already trained to expect that their Christianity will make them better patriots. Because that's what patriotism does. It creates people who are willing to die and kill for the country. That's the whole point. And we have a whole culture which is geared towards that, and it's a very successful ideology. It's no accident that another name for patriotism is jingoism. Patriotism has all the short, pithy phrases. It's got all the sound bites. It's got all the phrases that stick straight to the heart, get the emotions going, and make you feel good about yourself. And so to be on the other side of patriotism is already to set yourself up for a pretty uphill slog. A famous preacher who I have mentioned in previous episodes, he once asked me for feedback. He'd been giving a series of sermons on Romans 13, and he, to his credit, he'd heard I was in his environment, and so he asked for feedback. You know, true to form, his sermons were all pretty much what I've just described here. They were justifications for Americans dropping bombs on Iraqis and uh, joining the military and a militarized police force and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was it was pretty typical law and order type sermon. And, I, you know, I gave him my feedback and I told him the kinds of things that I'm about to, to talk about in this session, which aren't straightforward and they do take a bit of work to understand. And he leans over and he slaps me good-naturedly on the shoulder and says, yeah, you try telling that to the soldiers and the policemen in my audience. And I thought, this is the problem. The problem is, is that because it's hard to teach or hard to preach, we don't seek the truth. We only keep going down the furrows and the channels that have been set for us by a different agenda. The agenda of law and order patriotism is governing how we read Romans, which is doubly frustrating because in Romans... Paul is working out a pretty thoroughgoing view of politics based on the way of Jesus. So let's read from below. Not as somebody whose finger is on the trigger or whose hand is over his heart or who's looking up at a fluttering flag and thinking, yeah, it's my Christian duty to love and serve that flag. What happens instead if we join somebody who's in chains at the behest of the government who is about to be killed by the government, and who has always had to face opposition from rulers and authorities everywhere he went. What happens when we read from below? 
Well, I think the first thing you have to say when reading Romans 13, 1 to 7, is stop starting at Romans 13, 1 to 7. Chapters and verses were added later, after the fact. Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. He wrote one long letter. And chapters and verses have been inserted for various reasons, usually to do with translation or reading along so that people could literally stay on the same page with each other. But these chapter headings have actually changed the course of history. (laughs) They have also played their part in colonizing and capturing our imaginations. So, for example, what happens if we started our reading at Romans 12, verse 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Gee, I wonder what Paul's example of overcoming evil with good is. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. One of the first things we have to notice about Romans 13, 1-7 is that government and the ruling authorities are very much in the realm and sphere of evil in Paul's imagination. They're part of the powers and principality language that we discussed earlier in the last session. In Ephesians 6, where he talks about ruling authorities and spiritual warfare. And now he uses the same language for government in Romans 13. So first of all, if you're thinking that he thinks government is wonderful and brilliant and should be respected because it's so much higher than us, you're missing the point. Government is a fallen principality. It's in fact gone corrupt. The wrath of God language is language that's being used to describe elsewhere in the New Testament what happens when people get the evil that they want. Um, God gives them over. In Romans, he said, God gives people over to their own desires. And it's experienced as a wrath. It's like getting what you want is its own punishment. And here we have people who are doing like what Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. The wrathful, vengeance-seeking cycles of violence and killing in order to solve violence and killing is part of a sphere of activity which Paul distinctly tells his people not to have anything to do with. Romans 12, do not seek revenge, but leave it to the wrath of God. And then later on, within five seconds, he says it's the government that bears the sword that has to do with wrath dealing. And in Paul's imagination, there is an activity that belongs to the sphere of the principality of government, which is not something that believers are meant to partake in. Paul has a distinction. And the one thing that he told his believers not to do in Romans 12, he then says that's what the state or the government does in Romans 13. And it has to do with this idea that the wrath of God is almost like a force of nature. It's almost like the natural course of things. And that if you play by those particular rules, that's what's going to happen to you. And Paul here is doing like we talked about in the last session. He's identified a principality, and now he's telling that principality what its purpose is. He's putting it in its place. He's saying, ah, that the government is there to deal with wrath, vengeance, and law-breaking. And here is a little bit of something to do with reading from below, because you have to remember that, of course, The earliest followers of Jesus, when they were noticed by Rome at all, which, by the way, they often were ignored by Rome, but when they were noticed by Rome, it was to to mock them, to belittle them, or to persecute them. 
Paul has no pretensions to power. His readers have no pretensions to power. This is not a text or a manual for how to act when you find yourself in government. What this is, is a manual or a text for people who find themselves under the thumb of government. They are the little ants who are scurrying around while government is looming over them with a magnifying glass. And one of the charges against these Christians was that they were seditious and that they violently were going to oppose the governor. Remember, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. Caesar is Lord was the phrase you had to pronounce in order to prove yourself to be a good citizen of the empire. And the earliest rallying cry of the Christians after they came up out of their baptismal font was Jesus is Lord. And it was a political phrase. And so the whole identity of the followers of Jesus was already in the earliest church, a political identity set at odds with others. And the Christians were known for their meetings with Jews and Gentiles together. They were known for upsetting social boundaries. Slaves and masters would be together in one room. Men and women would have joint leadership positions or joint public positions in the church. Basically, they were an unruly lot that when Rome looked at them, they only saw potential trouble. And Rome pretty much had only one imagination when it came to rebels. They only saw that you could be an armed rebel. That was the only way to rebel against Roman Empire. And the earliest Christians knew that there was a different way. They had an alternative politics. And Peter in his letters and Paul here in Romans, they spend some time trying to convince or trying to encourage the Christians how to act in public in the face of a Roman Empire that assumes that anyone who doesn't ascribe to the emperor and his superiority must be a violent rebel. And so it's really important for the early Christians, the leaders, to write and to say to the Christians, don't give the government cause to think that you are one of these violent rebels that they expect you to be. Don't be like that. As far as it is possible, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't pick up the sword. Keep your head down. We've got other things to worry about. Another aspect of Romans, which is related, is that here is Paul who is writing as somebody who's not important to a group of people who aren't important, and yet he's deigning to tell the government what it's there for. And he's not actually talking to the government, of course. He's talking to fellow Christians, to fellow believers. And he's resetting or reimagining the world around them. In Romans 8, just five minutes in reading time, previous to this, he has identified that the believers are sons of God, fellow heirs with the ruler of the universe. And now in Romans 13, he says, for example, in verse 4, Caesar is God's servant. Paul wants the sons of God to submit to the servant. This is not... <laughs> a passage where the government is so great that we must bow down and scrape and do whatever it is that it asks of us. This is an example of the older, stronger brother submitting to the weaker brother. Now, look, I am not going to defend the way that the word submission has been used and abused by Christians and their systems throughout history. Obviously, this has not been a good thing lots of people. I will, however, point out that the abuse of the word submission has come entirely from Christians who find themselves, who's in places of power, find themselves responsible for institutions and countries and nations, and think that being a Christian is about law and order. But if you go back in and look at the way the submission is used in the actual primary texts, the very first people who use this word, you realize that Mutual submission is not about domination and law and order. It's about laying down your will for the sake of another person's will. And I am going to talk about this in a future episode, which is why I'm not going into it here. But just know that submission in the New Testament is not something that lowly, cringing, inferior people do to superior people. 
Jesus submitted to death, even death on a cross. He willingly laid down his life. And it's seen as the ultimate godlike thing to do. So when the New Testament talks about everyone submit one to another, it's not saying become cringing worms. It's almost the opposite. You can't control yourself unless there's a self to control. You can't put a limit on your own will and what you want unless you already have a will and you know what you want. So the submission type teaching in the New Testament is one of of telling people, control your power. You have power and this is how you use it. And again, I'm going to talk about this in a future episode, but essentially it's don't use your power to dominate others. When you practice submission, you are refusing to use your will to dominate over other people's wills. You're making space for them. Submission can be a very empowering thing because what you're doing is you are recognizing the validity of the person that you are submitting to. You're admitting that they have a will and a purpose and a place in this world, and you're refusing to let your own ego or your own power railroad over them and push them out. And we see this even here in Romans 13, where the act of submission to the government, to the servant, by the sons of God, is a way of recognizing the government's basic humanity and validity of existence. And it needs to be quickly said here that there are many words in Greek for obedience, but Paul doesn't use any of them. He says submission, and submission is not the same as obedience. You can submit to the government without obeying it. A good example is where in the book of Acts, where Peter and John are preaching in the marketplace and they're taken up by the authorities and they're told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So what do Peter and John do? They go back out and they promptly disobey the government and they keep preaching in the name of Jesus. And then what happens? The soldiers come and Peter and John are arrested. Nowhere do Peter and John deny the validity of the government. They don't deny that the people who are placed in rule over them have a responsibility for keeping the peace. If they denied the validity of the government, they would have acted very differently. But what they do is (laughs) they submit to the punishment. They are put in prison. There's an earthquake. The doors fly open and they stay in prison. Disobedience with submission. Even here in Romans 13, there's an interesting little wrinkle between the idea of submission and the idea of total obedience. Have a look at verse 7, where the believers are enjoined to render to Caesar what is owed to him, or to give to the government what is owed to him, which is a clear reference here to uh, Jesus's teaching, to render unto Caesar Paul doesn't quote Jesus directly very much. He quotes him at the end of Romans 12, and then he quotes him here in Romans 13, 7. This is very significant. This is part of the way of Jesus informing the politics of Paul. And he tells them, you got to pay to what the government is owed to them. Hang on. You don't give to the government or to Caesar everything he asks for, you give him what is owed. And who decides what he's owed? We do. The sons of God do. There's an implicit instruction here to render with discrimination. It's the same kind of attitude that Jesus had when they asked him about, should we pay this temple tax? And he says, render to Caesar what's got his image on it and give to God what's got his image. Rendering what to Caesar he is owed is not the same as giving to Caesar everything he asks for. And in fact, what follows in Paul's list is a pretty limited set of things. Give taxes, give revenue, and respect and honor. And then Paul continues. He doesn't stop at verse 7, which is where most of our evangelical and charismatic Trump supporters stop, he keeps going with the theme of owing. 
owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, nor any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so on and so on. But note that the standard by which Paul thinks we should measure what we owe to Caesar is not what Caesar thinks. It's what meets the law of love, specifically the love of neighbor, which is exactly what Jesus said, and it's a direct allusion to Jesus. And loving the neighbor is not the same as loving the nation. In fact, loving the neighbor will put you at odds with people who want to give priority to the co-nationalist. And if you don't think that's true, then go and read the parable of the Good Samaritan again. All this practice of doing good to your enemies, or overcoming evil with good, or rendering with discrimination, or willingly submitting to others and laying down your life and your will, these are all examples of a socio-political attitude in the New Testament, which can be summed up as benign indifference. The earliest Christians, taking their cue from Jesus, simply did not care about the things that the world around them told them was of paramount importance. Jesus, for example, did not care about ethnic purity. He did not care about defending the temple or defending Jewish chosen person status. He tells his followers not to uh, clutch tightly to what is rightfully theirs even when it is rightfully theirs, like, for example, when they are wronged in a court or when they are hit on one cheek or when they have to give their cloak or carry a Roman soldier's pack an extra mile. The attitude of Jesus here is one of open-handedness, not clutching tightly. And the idea here that you get is of a kind of indifference to the things that other people's whole identity was wrapped up in. Fighting the Romans, protecting your rights, making sure that Caesar doesn't get the tax. These are things that dominated the agenda of the people of his day. Jesus just doesn't really care. Likewise, Paul just doesn't really care. For the Greeks, I'm a Greek. For the Jew, I'm a Jew, he will say in one place. These are identity markers that are very important to the Greeks and Jews. And he just takes them up and lays them down. And you see him do this with his Roman citizenship, which he brings out when it matters to him and which he suppresses when it doesn't matter. You see him do this with his Jewish identity and with his claim to being a Pharisee. He'll take it out and polish it off when it's useful, but he also will let it go as well. Even in Philippians, going so far as to call all of these markers of pure Jewish identity, scubalon for the sake of Christ, which in English we translate as rubbish or trash, but I'll be honest with you, it means excrement with human hair in it. Paul is so far from being a patriot that he considers all the things that make him a good, loyal son of Israel to be like human hairy shit for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he's doing something similar here in Romans, where he's saying, you are sons of God, you are heirs of the universe, Submit to the servant for a time. Give him what he wants. It's only a money. It's only honor. It's only respect. We've got bigger things to worry about. We've got the love of neighbor to worry about. That's what we're here to do. Let the government get on with its wrath dealing and vengeance wreaking activity. That's not for us. Also, there's 430 something verses in the book of Romans. Paul talks about government in seven of them. He literally, words on a page, he literally does not care about government that much. And he certainly doesn't pour the same amount of emotional, intellectual, theological, philosophical, and financial resources into patriotism, government, politics, and nationhood that modern-day Christians do. Taken as a source of priority about what's important, it's pretty clear that these modern-day Christians are taking their cues much more 
from the modern day sense of country than from anything Jesus or the earliest Christians said or did. And let's be honest, I spend a lot more of my time talking about this stuff than Jesus or Paul ever did either. So maybe I should just shut my big fat mouth. I guess all I want to do in myself as well as in any fellow travellers I meet is to try and cultivate this sense of a benign indifference to the things that everyone else is so obsessed with and which occupies so much of our time. And you cultivate this not by being malignant. It's not malign indifference. You're not attacking it. You're simply not giving these things the attention and emotional investment which they demand. You render with discrimination. Now, of course, there's going to be further conversation that needs to be had about whether there are some jobs that followers of Christ cannot do. Paul seems to imagine that there is. He seems to imagine that some of the sword-wielding activities of the government is not for believers of Jesus. We live in a world now where that seems an odd thing to say. How can something be good for one group but not for another? And are we just being parasites if we don't pick up the sword, but we allow other people to wield the sword for us? So these are some interesting questions that will be dealt with later. But again, part of the political imagination of the followers of the way is to start to imagine that there might be things in this world which have a form and a function and a limited purpose, but are not for the followers of Jesus, because they have a different form, a different function, and a higher purpose. You are a child of God. Caesar is only a servant. I'll see you in the next episode as we continue our Followers of the Way, Renewing a Political Imagination. Well, I'm very happy to welcome back to the conversation space that we've created here, this online, international, cross-ocean conversation space we've created. I am welcoming back to the table Chris Marchand, of a vicar, a pastor in an Anglican church in Illinois, and Sean McCoy, a podcaster and uh, 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 a man who works with the oil and gas industry in Texas. And as you know, Sean and Chris and I are working through some of this stuff together, and it's always my pleasure and my joy to bounce ideas off them and to have them bounce ideas off me. So welcome, guys. It's so nice to see you again. Ah, how has your Chris, you're back from holiday. How was your holiday? Oh, it was good. Yeah, it was it was nice. We were we were with, with friends and we went to the beach and we also uh i'm happy to say we also spent a couple of days in the smoky mountains which is where uh, dolly parton is from oh and, uh, amazing the, the only thing i'm sad about is i didn't see her and uh why can't dolly parton become president <laughs> there you go there you go <laughs> <laughs> sean where, where did you have a holiday or have you been working what have you been doing this no time? yeah just one of those i haven't we haven't i have not personally done a holiday since the pandemic started, I feel like I've been a holiday. Not that okay. Not that I haven't been busy, but just not an official holiday. And I always feel bad about taking it because it feels. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I told my wife the other day we need to do something because I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure talking about theology and Romans 13 and submission to the governing authorities, that's a holiday, isn't it? <laughs> Convince <laughs> your wife that it's a holiday. <laughs> yes. So should we dive in? I mean, what did you think about all this stuff? I mean, you, you guys live in the land of uh, submission to the authorities, and that gets trotted out. It seems like every five minutes, somebody's pulling that set of Bible verses out. What do you What do you think about all this? Well, I was really I was really enraptured with the phrase, the benign indifference idea of, in lieu of all that, of what you're talking about. Not only that aspect of it, but also, you know, you start to look over and realize the amount of power and influence that we have on ourselves in a way between the different, you know, what do you call them, agencies or laws or whatever it is, you know, yeah. our reach and our ability internally and externally to, to kind of get our way mm. around, you know, news into enforce power and enforce what we think and our, our will, collective will, if you, if, uh, if you allow for that, it is a bit overwhelming because it feels like the thing I keep thinking about is how fast it can switch and how, and part of this episode talking about the reading things from above and below 
you know, it really just reemphasized a big part of the journey that, as we've mentioned before, that I'm, I'm very much on the above side. Right. You know, and not understanding how to read this when you're the one under the iron fist or the iron boot of, of somebody else in, in a true fashion. And, and the other thing you've even mentioned this before, we, we can empathize and try to sympathize and all this kind of stuff of what it'd be like and say what we would do and here's how we would act. But I don't know. And so it's a real challenge to then be aware of that and be around people that not only aren't aware of it, but are actually, you know, emphatically using the boot to, to stomp down, even though they don't know it, or maybe they do and they think it's part of righteousness. Mm. So then, so how to approach that and this idea of not being malignant, because that's the part that I think that we see, and no matter what, you can come in with the, the best of intentions and maybe, maybe look, you kind of talked about it, you know, what, you know, you let's read the rest of the book. Let's not just read the, the one, the, the clobber verses or the, or the yeah. ones that give us uh, all this authority. And how do we really take in the whole account of it? And then when you do, how do you then go to your brother or sister? And I, and to me, I don't even care if they're a brother or sister in Christ. I mean, there's like somebody that I'm in my neighborhood, yeah, in my world. And I hear from them and I listen to them and I'm sitting around having happy hour with them with my, and these are friends and they're saying stuff that is just like, there's a, <laughs> there's a hurricane going off in my head. I'm like, do I start this conversation? Or right. How do I do that? Right. Do I, am I going to die on this hill? Is this the battle yeah, I need right, to fight right now? Yeah. Right. Right. And picking your, and then if you don't, are you being, you know, in, in our world, you know, if you will, uh, you know, we're, so if I'm not standing up for what I believe in and I'm not, you know, you know, if I'm not all the time towing the line that I believe wholeheartedly and, mm. and, and damn be the results, am I a hypocrite? Am I a coward? Or maybe I don't even really believe what I think. Yeah. I mean, I've, <laughs> I once heard somebody, he was a Brazilian or uh, I think he was Brazilian pastor and he stood up and he said, the problem with you uh, white evangelicals, you think talking about a thing is the same as doing it. And, and so, because he said, you have all these conferences and you have all these sermons and you talk about love, but you know, or you talk about these things and you're sort of addicted to like winning arguments. And you think just because you won an argument that you've done something good, you know, and I and I've yoked that together with my phrase that I've said pointed out before that being right isn't one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but but did you just negate the reason for for this podcast or or, or uh, is it okay that we're talking about these things or? Well, if I speak with the tongues of angels but I don't have love, I'm just a dickhead. Excuse my French. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I mean, you can't. There is such a thing as being right and wrong. And there is such a thing as being in the presence of evil. And then there's what to do about it and how to hold yourself when you're in that position. And um, yeah. I, so I'm not saying like, I don't, I'm not some sort of moral relativist. I don't, I try to have a moral compass that's in good working order. I'm trying yeah. to have a touchstone for what's right and wrong, but that doesn't automatically mean that my job is to, once I've recognized evil to shout and jump up and down and ruin every dinner party and, destroy every family uh holiday because because my rightness is overpowers their sense of feeling loved i don't think that's true right um even if i think they're wrong um so yeah. i'm doing this podcast here but i'm not i don't <laughs> when i'm having a conversation with a friend that i don't agree with i don't say shut up you and then pull out my iphone and play my podcast in loud at loud volume at them <laughs> people can turn this off if they don't like it. You know, I'm not forcing anybody to listen to it. So I've heard that, that but that's a great way to grow your listenership is what I've heard. I probably should do that. Right. Dominate <laughs> the space with a loudspeaker. Um, yeah. So, I mean, how much do we use, you know, Romans 13, the law and order people, they use that as a domination tool of like controlling the space and squ literally, literally squashing and uh, stepping on and gassing our enemies and silencing their voices uh, all, all because so that we're right and that we can impose our rightness on the uh, space. And uh, I, I just don't think that's actually what Paul is trying to do with Romans 13, one to seven. <laughs> well, you know, there's an interesting conundrum going on currently right now. Um, I don't know how familiar you are, Stephen, but there's churches in California that have decided to meet, even though their governor saying, saying that indoor, yeah, worship times uh, are not allowed. <clears throat> and so it, the most famous one is John MacArthur's McCarthy church. church. Yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah, MacArthur. Pretty, pretty popular, yeah. you know, reformed, uh, kind of fundamentalist preacher. I, I think 
I think maybe my concern would be, and I'm curious what you have to think about what you what you have to say about this is there seems to be uh, a brashness to their decision, as if they're as if they're giving they don't they wouldn't do this, but they're kind of giving a middle finger to the governing authorities. Yeah, and, and it's it's their brashness that maybe turns me off. Um, there's a part of me that thinks, okay, if if they choose to worship, then and and they face the consequences, then go ahead. But but maybe it's it's their approach that that I don't I don't fully understand how uh, giving in to the authorities or or whether whether they're uh, disobeying or they're rebelling against the authorities. I don't know. What, what's your take on churches that behave that way? Well, one one thing worth pointing out is that the exact same people. <laughs> who are now quoting Romans 13 as their right to uh, say, no, we're, it's okay to rebel against the government in this case because Romans 13 doesn't apply because Caesar is is demanding something wrong, so we're allowed to disobey. Those are the very same people, like exact same people who are just last month were saying Romans 13 is exactly why you should you should be supporting armed forces gassing innocent protesters and all this, you know, like the hypocrisy is, is pretty staggering or at least the, maybe not hypocrisy. Maybe we shouldn't apply some sort of moral value onto this. Like the cognitive dissonance is making my head spin. And uh, you think, well, what is, what's going on here? Well, it's just that it seems pretty obvious that when the government says something that conservative patriotic Americans like, then they, like the government. And when the government says something that conservative patriotic Americans don't like, then they don't like the government. That seems to be the arbiter. It has nothing to do with, I mean, I did point out that we are totally overemphasizing these seven verses as well, by the way, like 430 verses in Romans and Paul talks about government in seven of them. And in Romans 13, eight, he says, uh, eight and nine, he says, you know, you should owe only to Caesar what obeys the law of love, which is love of neighbor. So he actually even puts a limit on how much you're supposed to obey Caesar. And if obeying Caesar makes you break the law of love of neighbor, then you should disobey Caesar. Well, does wearing a face mask meet or break the law of love of neighbor? And if my neighbor asks me to wear a face mask, I feel like that's what I do. <laughs> regardless of whether I personally think it's worth it or not. The point of the face mask is because we're trying to stop other people from getting sick. It's not because we're stopping ourselves from getting sick. So like, I feel like even that alone is not, has not broken the, uh, that is not a criteria for when you're allowed to disobey Caesar. However, when Caesar tells you to kill your enemies, that could be a breaking of the law of love of neighbor. And yet a lot of Patriots don't have any problem at all when Caesar commands them to do that. So I just feel like their moral compass has spinning wildly, you know. So I, I'm all for break. I'm all for, for for finding out good times to disobey the government. I'm totally happy with that. It's just I find it really odd that the the criteria they use is almost the, it is the exact opposite of what the New Testament used. They've they've come to the a different conclusion. So, so to that, one of the things I that helped me start to practice and something that's been kind of stirring in me as well from a, from a uh, introspective faith standpoint is we're really good at the verses, right? We're really good at those the verses. And so we're kind of using the verse. So really what's dictating whether what the verse means is our own situation instead of, instead of looking at the book. And that's one of the things that it made me think about. And you mentioned that it was, it was the numerical comparison between these are the seven verses out of the 460, I think is what it was. And that, so if you only focus on those and you're not taking, and you're, for both situations, so really the, the problem I think is the same. It's incomplete. It's, mm -hmm. an, it's, a, it's a piecemeal. And this is coming from somebody who I could walk right now through my house and point out and buy, you know, three or four signs or three signs, but it's verses, but single verses, you know, as for me and my house, yeah, right. the Lord, yep, yep. Uh, we, out there, we don't have the Jeremiah 29, 11 one. We have other ones. Um, love never fails, stuff like that. And so it's, you know, those are great, I think, to an extent. Uh, but what I, where it's challenging me is to go and look at the book. Because even, right, it was never written to be dissected down to that. No. It was never, it was not the contextual no. idea with, you yeah. know, fine chapter here, verse here. And that's that's the key is yeah. this yeah. phrase or whatever. 
Yeah. And so I, so I think for me, it was really stirring in me to kind of go back and say, I need to read all of Romans and re- again, and really look at it from a collective standpoint. What does it mean collectively for each of those situations versus mm-hmm. the other way? Because if not, and, it, and I don't know if it's hypocritical, and I, but I know what you mean. I just always worry about that language sometimes because if somebody's listening, they're like, oh, you think I'm a hypocrite? Yeah, I don't, I actually sort of walk back on that word hypocrite. I don't, I'm not trying to lob that. I'm just saying there seems to be a real. Right. right. No, I, no, I don't think so. I think dichotomy it's, it's more. Yeah. Right. It's more, it's, it, to me, it's just, it's in, in, the incomplete is where I keep using it. Keep right. Because right. it, it shows, and then they're not, you know, they're not complete, you know, they're not completely devoid of understanding. It's just, they haven't, the imagination, if you will, has not gone far enough for them uh, to see a little bit clearer, a little bit more, either the, either grow the imagination or become clear, however you want to look at it. And that's, again, part of the person's journey that's going through this. Because it is hard. I mean, it would be a whole lot easier if we could just, you know, fit the Bible for every little thing that we needed and wanted to do. And no matter which way we went, we could go, oh, see? Well, we Bible can do that. <laughs> the problem is, Sean, we can do that. The right. Bible can be right. used and is used for all sorts of diametrically opposite things. Um. So that is the problem. <laughs> I guess is partly what we're trying to say is like, yeah, but the life and works and the way of Jesus can't be used for diametrically opposite things. So, so this is a better way of a better touchstone for using our Bible. But, um, you know, and then you look at how, what was the cause of persecution for the earliest followers of Jesus? So, so why was the government? So famously the Roman government was, persecuting Christians at the time when Romans was written, right? Paul is writing under lock and key. And I've actually been in, did I mention that? I can't even remember. Did I mention that I've been in the room where probably he wrote the book of Romans? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh no, no, sorry. I take that back completely. I've been in the house in Rome where Paul almost certainly was under house arrest writing to mm-hmm. other people. Uh, he's been under, under house arrest in more than one Roman city. That's right. I've been in the house in Rome where he, where almost certainly he wrote. But in any case, he wrote the letter to the Romans while under house arrest. And he's writing to them. So he's been persecuted. He's been imprisoned. And, you know, the reason why early Christians were being persecuted was uh, not because they were collectively agitating for the for the religious right to worship um it was because they were seen to be offering hospitality to the wrong people um because they had jews and gentiles together in their houses um because their practices were destabilizing the local economy in the various places they went um because they were just upsetting the kind of social classes of the of the day. Slaves and masters were interacting in ways that wasn't really right, and wives and husbands were interacting in ways that just wasn't fitting with what you're supposed to do. And the whole thing was just this kind of... They were seen as atheists, the early Christians, because they weren't obeying the gods of the, the old ways, the gods of the age, you know? And, um, and it wasn't... And the Christians weren't sort of collectively using their their political muscle to force the government to do anything or to to agitate in any kind of coordinated way against the government. They weren't fighting for their rights. They were just being squashed because they were seen to be not fitting in, in with the normal way of life. And their response was to submit to it to let the government do it in a way they didn't try and fight back. And which, which is probably one of the occasions for Paul writing Romans 13 is he's basically, because I point out, you know, in Romans 12, he's writing specifically to the followers of Jesus. And he says, don't seek vengeance. Don't use the sword. And then in Romans 13, he says, Caesar has the sword. And if you live in, he's essentially like saying, like, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. So don't be one of those people. Don't be one of the people that Caesar has to kill. Be, we're not doing that. Like, just stay out of that. Don't raise, don't organize yourselves in any kind of armed protest against the government. Right? Don't have a militia. <laughs> don't have an army with private handguns and, uh, and machine guns in order to defend yourself against the government. You know, that's what the occasion for Romans 12 and 13 is, essentially, which is a, a, a million miles away from how most conservative evangelicals what they think and stay, you know, so, 
you know, a lot of that is just worth even looking at what they were being persecuted for and then what they did about it. And, um, and, and their response was, let's keep our heads down. Let's quietly get on with doing what we're doing and let's not pick a fight with the government. So it's the exact opposite of what we're seeing in California. <laughs> to be so honest. I wonder, so Chris, I got a question for you. So, I mean, I know how, I know how from a congregation, from a leadership standpoint, in terms of a congregation, how is that message ever talked about in it, in quote unquote, in Illinois, where you are and not to speak for the whole state or the whole region, but I know how things predominantly are down here. So I mean, if you walked, if you literally into a congregation and say, look, this is the way we're going to approach this. I believe this is God ordained. I believe this is in the gospel. This is what we're supposed to do to be, to be true to our religion first. What kind of response would you get from a pulpit standpoint? Now, in your scenario, what what are you saying? Are you saying that maybe from the pulpit I've said we need to obey our government, or maybe I've said the opposite? So, what's your right. what's your what the kind of scenario? Do you imagine more, more the opposite, more the the you know, so you, you know, letting go of that power, letting go. Well, um, and, and I guess maybe not to preface it too much, but the, the reaction I get when I talk about that kind of stuff is, oh, you just want somebody. So, if somebody comes in and wants to rape your wife, you're just going to let them, or you know, what if somebody breaks in, there's all these, you know, typical fear mongering mm-hmm. things that like statistically literally never happen to people, but all this other stuff does. But there, but this is the, this is the overwhelming reason that we have to have guns in every, every corner of the house. And, you know, why we go out and, you know, take CBQ stuff, you know, in terms of training, like, I, I, like I list people pay like personally, like to learn how to literally, you know, do tactical stuff in their own home and stuff like this, just in case, even though, you know, the, the odds of it are very low, but if that was presented uh, to your church, like how would that be received? Do you think? It depends on the people. I think people are immediately offended. <laughs> their, their, their American sensibilities are just stirred up immediately. Once you start talking about giving away power, once you start saying, this is just what the government's going to do. It's not our job to fight it. Our job is to be faithful followers of Jesus. I think I mean, you know, I live in downstate Illinois, and, you know, they, they talk about it being two separate states, with Chicago kind of being its own Democratic state and, and more conservative Republican the rest of the state. And so I think down here, yeah, th- those sensibilities are immediately offended. Uh, and we don't know anything but defense. We don't know anything but rising up. And again, like, Stephen, you point out, you point out it's very strange. One moment they're supporting the government for law and order, and the next they're 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 uh, rising mm-hmm. up against it. <laughs> um, but I but I do I think I think that's very countercultural to say no. It's okay. We we let the government do what the government does. We are going to follow Christ. People people don't tend to think yeah. that way here. No, <laughs> because what because we've combined. Yeah. We think being right is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So we think if I'm right, then everybody has to know it. And other people have to respect it and it has to be rewarded in, a, in the laws of the land. And, uh, and I think that's a, yeah. that's a connect that the early Christians didn't have. Stephen, I have a question that, that might relate to all this. Um, and it, and I, I think Americans in some senses are obsessed with creating laws. Like we need the laws to give us the parameters that, that we need. So, so for me, one of those instances would be gun control. And, you know, and, and Sean, you kind of mentioned that just a little bit. Um, I, I was at a point where I was thinking, yes, we need more gun control in our country. Like, like there is just so many, uh, there are so many dangers. There's, there's more guns in America than people. It, it's, it's insane. It's crazy. We need gun control. So we need gun control legislation. And what I've come to realize is, there's 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 a futility in me trying to speak to people that are pro gun that are pro second amendment in my country uh th- there's there's no reason for me to say you know what we need more gun control because they immediately look at me as if i've yeah. spoken evil and so i'm i'm curious like is maybe part of the benign indifference is it's not telling people yep we need to get rid of the second amendment yep we need more gun control but it's 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 asking other people, you know what? It, maybe it's time that we lay down our weapons. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not asking the government anymore no, to yeah, take away exactly. your guns. Instead, I'm saying, what does it mean to follow in yeah. the way of Jesus? Is that kind of how the benign indifference plays out? It's not in enacting laws against guns. It's instead pointing yeah. to another way. Is that, is that kind of, yeah. am I in so the right? I, I, would, I would say to you, Chris, if you really don't, 
if you really think that owning guns is a is a problem, then please put all of your moral energy into training up children who don't think that owning guns is a solution to their problems. Please put your moral energy into every time you have a relationship as a pastor with somebody who cares about following the way of Jesus, put your energy into opening up new avenues for collective action that doesn't involve shooting people or, you know, like, or start to strengthen the moral fiber and moral character of somebody who is willing to actually be vulnerable because they think it's better for me to be vulnerable than for me to kill a human being, for example. Like there's all sorts of approaches that you can take as a follower of Christ that don't involve uh, lobbying the government for something, you know? And yeah, you're right. Like I don't think the solution to, um, to, to guns is more gun control. It's, it's, I just wish the people, oh, I wish everybody in America who, who said they follow Jesus which, let's be honest, that's a lot of people who say they follow Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone, just the people, just, it's a really modest claim. Would, would everybody in America who claims to be a Christian please just start acting like a Christian? We don't care about the law. You can have all the guns out there legally for sale that you want. You can have all the checks and balances that you want. But where our modest proposal is, would all the people who claim to follow the way of Christ consider not owning weapons that will kill human beings. You know, and that's, that's yeah. the kind of alternative I would say. And that's a very deeply political thing to do. Even if you never once step foot in the uh, halls of power, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you're showing, mm-hmm. you're almost voting with your body and with your life, what you think is valuable. Yeah. And, and part of that goes a little bit back to our, our interview with Joanne and how they were coming up with solutions that, they it wasn't just about making yeah. new laws. It was saying we're going to create a world where these things we can get rid of these things. And in, in her case, it was plastic. And so I'm kind of thinking on that level in terms of of, of guns as well. Um, you know, I, I think I think about with with Christians owning guns. At the very least, I would think a Christian would say, I. I never want to have to use this. The very fact that I would ever use this is an utter tragedy. And so I, I even hold this gun as a kind of lament. Um, uh, that, that would be the very least. But what, what I see in America that. is quite the opposite. <laughs> never, I've seen, never that. seen that. <laughs> That's like a unicorn. It's, it's more of a, You've just described a unicorn. unicorn. <laughs> yeah. Right. Instead, what we see is I will exactly. do what I have to to defend my, exactly. my, my it, it, family. Far from being a, far from being a, you. the, the, the lesser of two evils and a, and a great travesty and a, Oh, what a, can you believe we live in a world in which I have to own a, a piece of lethal violence against my enemies? Can you believe the state we've come to? Woe is us. Have mercy on us, Lord. That's not what you see. You see guns being the central plank in the Christian's politics. It's the thing that's most important to them. Like this isn't, we're not in some situation of, you know, of people desperately trying to work out how to how to negotiate their space in a fallen world. That's not what's going on here. Uh, and I'd love to see more people take that seriously. You know, it's almost again like at the very least, can you take it seriously? Can you think about it? Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people do see. It. And then I was going to say, if you talk about Joanne and the plastics and stuff, and it's also similar to Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery. Um, what you see is that it's not saying, and I could, I could see the same happening for guns, by the way. It's not saying that government and regulation has, Christians have nothing to do with any of that. And abortion is another example. It's not saying have nothing to do with it. It's saying, notice how that the best changes that happen in the world happen when a lot of the legal changes follow what Christians have been doing. They, they're catching up with the social reality that already exists in lots of ways. They're not, they're not always leading. So, uh, you know, a lot of the attitude around slavery, for example, Wilberforce here in the UK, he was, he was building on and flowing from an absolute like wave of evangelical abhorrence to slavery. He wasn't agitating to change the laws and then went and and tried to convince the evangelicals. Like the evangelicals in this country were, um, in, in large part, not in, not in, not all of them, but 
you know, he was building on a popular wave of, of people who knew it was wrong. Um, so I think that's worth paying attention to. <laughs> and, you know, so Joanne as well, they're, they're trying to change our attitudes towards plastic. And then they're hoping that governments will notice and say, look what's happening. These people, this, I know Joanne Green does this in Tier Fund. She, they, they go to these governments and to large corporations and they say, look what's happening. Like th- the people are already doing this. They already want this. They're already acting in these ways. You could catch up if you wanted. You could follow them. You could go where the popularity is, you know, and I, that's an interesting approach to, to, to do that. And it's not all aimed at, um, if we could just change the law of the land, then all our problems would be solved. So, so, so Stephen, just to go back on the gun thing real quick, to tell you, I'm trying to be as quick as I can, but I have kind of gone through a little bit of this recently with, so it was about, I think it was three, four years ago, three years ago. And so some of this was starting to unravel for me. My wife actually purchased for me for Christmas, uh, at the time, I'd been talking about getting a concealed handgun license. I was kind of going back and forth between Ooh. that kind of thing, looking at different models. She bought one for me for Christmas. And, she, and for years, she would be like, you know, I wasn't happy when I got it. And she's like, you, you don't seem happy. Because I I was, I, I, and I remember I thought to myself as I got this gun, it was yeah. a Glock 43 single stack. Um, it's like the, like the, one of the most ideal handguns, you know, personal, uh, everyday carry kind of stuff. Anyway, I, I remember thinking like, here I am on, Christmas, which is supposed to be yeah. the celebration of the birth of Christ and what Christianity means. And my wife is buying me a handgun. And the thing that she thinks I want more than anything in the world is this, is this handgun. And she actually sold. So like she gave, like she wow. sold one of her purses to go buy for it and all this other stuff. So it was like, she wanted it to be a good thing for me. And she wasn't quite right. aware that I was going through this process as as I was. And then, so all she sees is her husband just being like flippant on, on Christmas. But what it was, was overwhelming for me to like, think, like is this is this right? Like if like if 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 the Christ is right there with me, like it's supposed to be, is it high fiving? Right. Like all right, good. There you go. Get ready. So when they yeah, come right. to the door, you can just let them have it. You know, and protect your family. Kill this person. So fast forward that to something. An exercise I just went through is a little bit about like what you can do. Um, I've now sold all the guns that I own except for one shotgun and one rifle. And the shotgun I use for sporting clays. So it's it's not mm. it's not much for. Uh, Anything other than that, it's not, it's a it's a it's a Benelli, a really nice Benelli, and then I have a deer rifle that I got. Um, and that's it. I, I sold all my handguns and every all my other anything else mm-hmm. besides those two. I got rid of and sold it to my friends, and only had like a couple of them kind of ask like, you know, you know, you don't want any handguns? And I was just like, nope. And they were like, oh okay. And they, I haven't really had any discussions, but I could for so to me not to be. And this is please do not read into this as some sort of self righteous holy. <laughs> I am the unicorn who did all this stuff, but. But I will tell you that, yeah. but even going through that process and knowing that I was going to probably get, and like, and I had no problem selling my guns. I'll tell you that much right now. Like it, I, I literally had to draw out of a hat because I had so many people that wanted all the ones I was giving away. That yeah. There was like, it was like no problem. Yeah. <laughs> it was no problem yeah. at all to get rid of them. And, and most everybody that bought them had like, I know one of the people that bought one was my dad and he's got. ARs and all yeah. kinds of other stuff that he has. And he's, my dad has been waiting for a home invasion since I was well, born. And uh, yeah, and I mean, look, look how this is a, a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. To, to the man with a hammer, everything's a nail. <laughs> right, right. And, so, and I think, you know, the part of it is, and even my wife at some point was kind of like, you know, are you saying that you know, if somebody comes in this house, you're like you're not going to, you know, yeah, protect yeah. this? Like, this is like basic fundamental kind of human kind of stuff. And it wasn't that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to sit here. And, but I mean, it really, I mean, where does it, what would it mean if somebody came in here? What would, what would I do? And I think about it all the time. And um, I, I just know that it's not going to be. Well, there fire. is going to be some, I mean, we're going to be talking about this later on. Like this isn't, this is a big subject that's going to come up in this podcast, by the way. So it's not that we're not, it's not that we're avoiding the subject. It's we're, we're going to be talking about it quite a lot in the next few weeks. Um, I would say very quickly, Sean, that there's a di- there's a difference between using violence to protect your family and taking out a handgun and blowing the brains out of somebody who's hovering, you know, who's in your house. Like, it, you know, I think I have to keep saying, I think lethal violence is the thing we're looking at here. It's that intent to kill. That's the thing that we're looking at. It's not, it's not, if somebody was attacking your wife, would you just stand there? And you're like, no, of course you wouldn't. You'd, you'd do what it took to get rid of them, but you wouldn't, 
there's a difference between using violence to protect somebody and intentionally taking their life. And I think that's the thing that, and even, and even if guns can be used in ways, controlled violent ways that don't include deliberately taking somebody's life, then I personally have come to the conclusion. I think that's all right. You know, uh, there are nonviolent and pacifist Christians who would disagree with me and they would say any use of violence is, is a problem, you know, but for various reasons, I, I think it's more the lethal violence. I think the, it's that kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, a life for a life. That was the trajectory that Jesus is talking about when he says, turn the other cheek and don't demand an eye for an eye. So I feel like there's something going on there. It's more about that escalation to killing a human to solve a problem. To me is that I'm trying to. Avoid. In, in, so, so to be honest, I'm probably, I'm probably going, you're going more, more towards, towards I mean, I'm no, more on the no side. Yeah. So we'll have this yeah. conversation. Which, oh yeah. Because, because I don't, because yeah. I don't see it. I don't. I mean, Luke, when he comes, when the yeah. soldiers come yeah. to Jesus. I mean, if there's ever a time to roll up your sleeves yeah, and fight, I mean, and what does no, he do? I, I, he you're right. Peter I mean, for them. Yeah, Some kind maybe of like, maybe I'm compromising out of weakness and lack of faith. I it is true, you know, like that. You know, when Saul was kicking <laughs> oh, down doors to to drag Christians away, they didn't use violence against him to protect their families. You know, yeah, they they right. let him they let him do it. You know, so and they could have, they could have definitely used violence yeah. to protect their families, but they didn't. So that is true. That's one of the, you know, and, and, and this is where you start talking about the individualism that's rampant, that comes along. With, so the idea that a man is the defender of his castle and it's just up to you to protect, you know, your family and your property is also hand in hand with this kind of fierce individualism, which is something we're going to be talking about in the next next week's episode. So I won't go into it too much, but just this idea that like you're all by yourself, and if it's not in, and if it, and if you don't do it, nobody will, right? But the early Christians didn't have that individualism. They're like, it's not you by yourself that's supposed to turn the other cheek. It's we are going to do this, and if you suffer injustice because you've refused to take the life or to fight a human being then we've got your back and we're gonna be with you you know so the man who goes the extra mile with the soldier will then be fed and blessed and protected by his church right and and the, so that so i think we get in a muddle because we think well, I can't obey Jesus because I'm all by myself and who will take care of me? And you're, you're right. You can't do it by yourself. But those were not singular individualistic commands. They were a, a, a rule of life for a group of people, which again, I'd like to see us put more energy into solving some of these problems collectively as followers of Christ. But I think that's a good place to go for our next episode. So friends why don't i see you try not to kill anyone with any of your uh, handguns and i will see you next week safe and sound i hope to further support the show please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts follow us on social media and learn more about 10th theology at www.tenththeology.com thank you for joining us and god bless everyone